Welcome back to Open Source Startup Podcast. As usual, this is Tim from Essence VC and Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. This is our three-year anniversary of recording this podcast, if you can believe it or not. If you're first time tuning in, we've been doing it for that long. So check out our previous episodes if you want to. But we're super, super excited to have a special guest today. So Russ is the CEO and co-founder of LifeKit, which is a real-time voice and video for developers. So welcome, Russ. Thanks so much, Tim. Well, congrats, first of all, on uh, three years. You all have been doing this podcast longer than LiveKit has been around. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's been uh, many episodes and many awesome conversations. But today we're excited to learn more about LiveKit. So one of the things we like to do on this podcast is start at the very beginning. And so why don't you talk a bit about why there was a need for essentially an open source alternative to a Twilio or an Agora? Yeah, sure. The uh, You can kind of trace the, the genesis of LiveKit all the way back to right around the start of the pandemic in 2020. So before you started the podcast, about a year before. And my co-founder and I, David's my co-founder, we had sold a company to Medium that we had been working on for about six years. And I was running product at Medium. And Medium is, at the time, roughly like a 400-person company. Pandemic hits. Everyone's working from home, can't go anywhere. And Clubhouse had just come out into alpha. And so I started using Clubhouse and I was just blown away by this very unique way of connecting people in real time over the internet through this kind of live podcasting studio audience, massive studio audience kind of use case. And I thought to myself, well, I really want to build a clubhouse for companies because I want to be able to use this with my coworkers at Medium. And so I found out that Clubhouse was using Agora for their audio and video infrastructure. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll use Agora too. I don't know much about what is out there, but Agora, you know, if it's good enough for Clubhouse, it's going to be good enough for this application I wanted to build, which I called Water Cooler. And so I went and I took Agora and I built this Clubhouse for Companies prototype and I ended up launching it a month later on Product Hunt, and it just instantly blew up. So I had a 1,300-company waiting list. I did an interview with the BBC and the Wall Street Journal. The New York Times did this profile on Clubhouse. And at the bottom of this article, Taylor Lorenz puts, and they have a competitor coming up that launched over the weekend called Water Coolers. And even, if it, even though it wasn't a competitor, somehow I had all these kind of eyes on this project. And... Um, one of those 1,300 companies was Pinterest. And Pinterest came to me and they said, hey, Russ, we want to buy 500 seats for our entire product org of your water cooler app. And um, I said, well, what's the next step? Because I'd never sold B2B software before. So I didn't know kind of the ropes there. And they said, well, we have one major question around security. Where does your audio and video data go? because we're going to be discussing proprietary company information, trade secrets. What are you using for your audio and video? And I said, well, I'm using Agora. It works for Clubhouse, so we're good to go, right? And they said, well, hold on, not quite. We don't trust Agora. We haven't looked into their infrastructure. There have been people writing about kind of security vulnerabilities with Clubhouse. So you need to find an alternative solution to Agora, and then we'll be willing to buy. So I went to David. We were still at Medium. And I said, hey, I need you to help me find a way to get off of Agora and find a, a new solution for this. And so that's when we started to really discover kind of 
from an infrastructure perspective, what was out there in the world already. We first looked at commercial. So we looked at Twilio, we looked at Vonage, and there's like so many different kind of offerings in the commercial side for audio and video infrastructure, real-time WebRTC infrastructure. And the major thing that we discovered when we looked at it was all of these use cases, and it, it makes sense in retrospect, but they were all really built for the last 10 years of audio and video, meaning the only thing you used real-time audio and video for for 10 years, from like 2011 to 2020, was video conferencing. It's the Zoom use case. And so they were all kind of built for low-code, no-code, bespoke versions of Zoom that you want to build. What we were building was something very different from that. We were building something that was more mobile-focused. It was available as a desktop system tray app, and you could have people coming and going kind of very dynamically, dropping in casually for a conversation and leaving. And so a lot of that connection model and the availability of integrations across platforms just wasn't there. So then we went and looked at open source, thinking we would find something more general purpose. And what we found in open source was roughly the same thing, but even less from a feature perspective. We found a lot of media servers that were very tuned for video conferencing again, but it was just a bare bones media server. And there were no full-time people that were working on this. It was kind of a, a side project or a hobby project for a lot of these folks in open source who were building there. And none of them had SDKs. So there were no SDKs. You'd have to build it all yourself on mobile. And then when you came to deployment and scale, there was just nothing as well. Like it, it wasn't designed for someone who's really trying to operate production level infrastructure. And so we said, wow, okay, there's this gap in this market and how hard could it be to build it ourselves, right? <laughs> Little did we know how complicated it would end up being, but we ended up working on it really with the initial purpose of powering Water Cooler as the application. And eventually we kind of forgot about Water Cooler and became more interested in the infrastructure itself and decided to just solely focus on working on that. And that's amazing. You actually have such an amazing story about you know, your background and building the products. And so maybe to dive a little deeper is probably non-obvious to me is why go open source. Because I think we've seen products that not exactly what you're doing, but has some level of infrastructure for videos to some extent. And I don't think there are anybody else I know that's doing this open source besides LifeKit. So maybe you can right. talk about like the fundamental decision of even open sourcing. Is it just because internal project and this is turned into something else or this is a strategic decision to open source and how this plays into the, the role of the product? Yeah, for sure. I think it happened kind of in both ways, almost simultaneously. So the first one was that it was being used as infrastructure to power this side project that I've been working on, right? That was the original impetus. But what also happened is after we started to integrate this into Water Cooler, we had told a few friends that we were building this infrastructure to power my app, but also, you know, they're working on apps at the time during the pandemic, everybody's working on apps for a remote world. And so they said, oh, well, would you mind you know, sharing the code for that infrastructure with us. And we said, well, yeah, sure. Let's, you know, we'll create a Git repo and we'll we'll share that code with you and you can use it as well. Like we're not tied to building, you know, that infrastructure, which of course now is called LiveKit, but at the time didn't have a name, but we weren't tied to creating a company out of it. It was more just something that we needed for our application we were building. So we were happy to share it with friends. We created a Slack channel where they started to ask us about, you know, bugs and SDKs and things like that, features that they needed. 
And so it started to kind of organically grow in that way, but it still wasn't full-blown open source. There was another kind of parallel line of thinking that happened at the same time. And this was when we saw all of these other providers out there, both commercial and the open source ones, who were really built around video conferencing, this use case that has been very popular for a decade, we saw the next decade of audio and video being very different. And I think Clubhouse was kind of the tip of the spear or for us, the proof point that the ways people are going to want to use and leverage the camera and the microphone, just as an aside, the camera and the microphone are these magical sensors. A camera can capture photons and convert those photons, that light, into ones and zeros. A microphone can capture vibrations in the air and turn that information into ones and zeros. You can take this information, you can send it over wires, a computer network, and you can reconstitute and replay back that information anywhere in the world. This is teleportation technology, right? Probably the closest thing that we will have to teleportation technology for quite some time. And to us, it seems that the next decade, we're going to leverage this technology in all these different ways that you can't imagine. And so that's one kind of thing that we believed, that this is how people will start to use cameras and microphones in these very diverse ways in the future. But there's a couple other parts to it or a couple other trends that have been building since really the start of computers in the 50s. The first one is that like, as software eats the world, more people end up working in software. And what that means is that you have more people working in software and they're all over the world. They're not just in Silicon Valley or in New York or London or LA, they're everywhere. And multiplayer software is something that we're gonna see an increasing amount of over time. It has been video games for a long time, but you're starting to see multiplayer capabilities being injected into all types of different applications. And the camera and the microphone are, it's a certain level of fidelity in terms of presence, right? The camera and the microphone, a shared mouse cursor, a little avatar, a green dot like in Slack, all of these things are just forms of presence. The camera and the microphone happen to be a very high fidelity way of projecting yourself into a digital space. And so software is becoming more multiplayer and collaborative. That's one trend that's been building ever since the start of computers. The second trend is, and this one comes from Josh Wolf at Lux Capital, and he was on the Knowledge Project podcast in 2019, and he talked about this idea of the half-life of technology intimacy. I hope I'm getting that right. But the trend is that computers are getting closer and closer to the human body over time. So they start off in a room with the ENIAC, then they end up on a desk, then they're on your lap, and then they're in your pocket. And then they're on your wrist and in front of your eyes with the Vision Pro and with the Humane pin, they're sitting on your chest. And as computers get closer to the human body, the inputs and outputs have to work similar to how the human body's inputs and outputs work. Your eyes and your ears work in real time to take in the world around you. A camera and a microphone that are sitting on your body have to use their eyes and their ears to take in the world around it and have it you know, process that information and give you a result. What are the eyes of a computer? It's a camera. What are the ears of a computer? It's a microphone. And so these sensors are going to be eventually used all the time, always running, always taking in the world. 
And so both of these trends, like this collaborative nature of software and multiplayer nature of software, being able to share my presence with anybody in the world at any time, and computers getting smaller and you know merging with my body, both of these trends suggest that the applications of the next decade or of the next 15 years are going to use the camera and the microphone a lot more than they do today. For all software infrastructure categories, when the use of a particular piece of infrastructure becomes commoditized, an open source company comes in and really dominates the space. It's happened in databases, it's happened in ETL, it's happened in security, it's happened in stream processing. It had not happened for audio and video, as you said, Tim, because audio and video for the last 10 years has been a niche category and only used for video conferencing. But over the next 10 to 15 years, it's going to be used for so many things. And we are angling to be the open source standard, the open source company that powers that next generation of applications that use the camera and the microphone. So part of the reason we went open source was because our friends wanted to use our stuff and it was the easiest way to share our code with them. But the other part was we really see this opportunity to become the stack that gives away this knowledge for free and allows every application to be able to build with cameras and microphones in the future. Yeah, I love the vision for, okay, if this is going to become more critical infrastructure, then like there should be an open source play here. We've had a number of companies on this podcast that are open source alternatives to closed source applications. They were maybe the first one that came out. And it can be a really powerful way to build because you have the community aspect of it. You can develop trust much faster, but it can also be really challenging. You're giving away a ton of value for free. You also have a community that you have to deal with. You're kind of building in a way two products at the same time. So can you talk to us a bit about what you've learned on the open source side, building that community, trying to kind of juggle the like complications that do come with building an open source company? Yeah, totally. This is mine and David's first foray really into open source. We've been, you know, longtime users as engineers of open source infrastructure and software, but our first time really kind of giving back and building something for the community. And building an open source company can be challenging. And there are new types or different types of things that you have to think about versus maybe when you're building the typical SaaS company or consumer startup that's proprietary and closed. One of the things that we thought a lot about at the start was how we wanted to eventually commercialize the product. So you mentioned kind of building two different versions of your software. That's something that we explicitly did not want to do when we were building our commercial cloud offering, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into at some point. But the reason we didn't want to do kind of like maintain two versions, one, it's just kind of a burden to do so. And it's a, it's a bunch of work to maintain a fork. But the second thing is that we knew that if we wanted to build a community that is truly aligned with LiveKit and the growth of LiveKit and will champion LiveKit, we have to also structurally incentivize ourselves to build what's right for the community and not what's right for ourselves. And I'll kind of get into this maybe a little bit with the cloud offering, but we explicitly decided to build our cloud offering around open source instead of forking open source. So what that does is it structurally incentivizes ourselves from a commercial standpoint that if we want to make our own commercial product better, we have to make 
open source better for everyone as a result anyway. All of the improvements we make to commercial end up propagating down to open source and all the folks that are self-hosting in our community. Now, you also mentioned kind of that communities can be pretty active and they can demand a lot over time. And we do see that as well. So we have a pretty active community now. It's one of the most active, I would say, around kind of audio and video in this space that we're in. And the discussion can get pretty detailed from many different folks that are building with LiveKit. And I don't think I have great insights yet into how to scale that. One interesting thing that we've seen some open source communities do is they will hire someone to take over the community. And I've just been reading recently Elon's biography. And regardless of whatever you think about Elon, one of the interesting learnings from his biography is that when they were building out SpaceX and Tesla, he had the designers sit in the factory with the people that were working on the line so that they could really empathize and understand how were their designs impacting how the actual atoms are put together on the line. And yeah, building up that empathy for the designers and the engineers that are not actually sitting there, you know, doing the the kind of the manual work. And I kind of view our community and the way that we try to work with our community in the same way. We have effectively said to all of my teammates, we're about 24, 25 people now, 22 engineers, so very engineering heavy, which makes sense because we're kind of this very deep infrastructure. It's a very difficult problem. But I've said to the team, everybody needs to take on the burden of support and being engaged with the community and helping them through their problems. We can't insulate ourselves from the quirks and the design of our infrastructure, the problems that people are trying to solve, we need to all feel that very kind of viscerally every day so that we can build the best thing for that community. So that's kind of how we've so far dealt with the community, but it does take up time. It definitely takes up time. So one other thing that you mentioned, kind of open source versus commercial, and how are you thinking about building those two things out? One thing that I talked about was being able to not fork our project and really build cloud around open source to incentivize us to always improve open source for the long term. But the other thing that I think is really important for open source companies to consider is what is your cleaving point? I call this your cleaving point. And what the cleaving point is, is where do you separate what is paid and what is free and open source? There are three buckets here. On one side of the spectrum, you have an open source company that when they go to commercialize, they give most of their value away in open source and there really isn't a good reason to pay them. I'm not going to name names. We use some open source products that there isn't really a strong motivation to pay them because they've so generously given away most of the value in open source. On the other end of the spectrum, you have these companies that I guess some people call them open source, but you have these companies that all the almost essential features for anyone building something real, they make those all paid. So everybody has to effectively, to get the main value out of it, have to go and start paying. For us, we said, okay, what is first principles, right? Like we want everybody that is capable of paying us to pay us and everyone that can't really or doesn't have the means to pay us to be able to get the value, but become advocates for the platform and help it grow and help it become the best thing that it possibly can be. And so how do we design kind of a split or a cleaving point such that it satisfies this kind of baseline interest that we have? And 
it turns out that the best open source companies from a commercialization standpoint, they draw the line at deployment and scale. It naturally occurred for us. I'm not going to pretend like we had some genius kind of by design. It just turned out that when you build network software, deployment and scale is the natural cleaving point. LiveKit open source is a single server that you can deploy somewhere in the world. Everybody connects over the public internet to that server, and all streams are routed out from that server over the public internet to everybody connected to it. You can vertically scale that machine, and you have to pay the latency cost of the public internet. Also, if that server goes down, you have to deal with the reliability and how do you actually resume a session and deal with the interruption there and the user experience. You have to deal with those things but it's free and it's open source. And that's kind of the value that you get. You can build something really great using that and deploy a cluster all around the world and it auto scales. We've made it really easy to deploy and scale. All of that is there. And then what we said was, okay, well, if we're going to build an orchestration layer though that allows it to horizontally scale all around the world, run as one internet real-time network fabric, everyone connects to the edge, forwards their streams all over the private backbone, you get all this fault tolerance and reliability, Um, You get the latency benefit of the private internet backbone. You get massive scale because you can horizontally scale it to an infinite degree as long as you can provision machines. That's all going to be this orchestration layer that is closed source and proprietary. And that's going to be kind of the split that we draw. If you want those things, you use cloud. If you don't need those things, you're welcome to use open source, but you can also use cloud as well. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that's always been one of the hardest part about building open source-based companies. One thing I'm very curious about, looking at other alternatives when it comes to building video or audio-based applications, I think there's more than one company that's targeting developers, right? Developer is your core audience because they are building the apps and they want you to integrate with you. And being open source definitely should be a huge benefit for them because they can see the code, they can even get involved. I wonder, do you try to also bring them in as contributors to your projects? And do you have any certain things you learned wanting them to able to do that? Because this is very specific of a software, right? WebRTC is not everyone's game at all. It's pretty specific. So you had to know codecs, you know, this and that. But there are benefits beyond just, I can see the code, I think. So maybe you can talk about like, how does developer also gain the benefits of being open source beyond just able to look at the code? Do you have contributors? Do you have maybe some certain experiences that's unique when it comes to open source-based offering? Yeah, I would say that, so from a contribution standpoint, as you mentioned, WebRTC, there's not that many people that can go really, really deep on WebRTC and codecs and things like that. Congestion control, all of the different kind of complexities that underlie real-time networking, especially for high bandwidth data like audio and video. And so from a contribution standpoint, we have had people who have contributed to the platform, but not as many as, say, that might contribute to a platform like Airbyte, right, with an integration. We don't have that level of contribution. For a lot of folks who have made contributions to the core platform, we've actually brought them onto the team full-time. Probably around half of our team comes from open source and contributions to the project. You know, they are passionate about kind of real-time networking, real-time audio and video. They make contributions. We see that their code is amazing. And we say, you're doing this for, you know, as part of your passion, How about you also get paid to do this? And so that's been kind of a superpower in terms of building out our team, especially from an engineering standpoint. The other interesting benefit that you get from open source with LiveKit that 
perhaps is maybe a bit different from other platforms or other open source offerings out there is when I mentioned that we took LiveKit open source, we did not fork it and we built this orchestration layer around it for our cloud offering. One other design principle that we had was we really wanted to make sure that when we said that there was no vendor lock-in, there really is no vendor lock-in. And the way that we do that is LiveKit Open Source and LiveKit Cloud are the exact same APIs, exactly the same, the same SDKs. It's all the same core media server underneath. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to move between open source and cloud without changing a single line of application code. You change a URL of where you're connecting to, an API key and a secret, and you're done. You're running on your own self-hosted deployment or you're running on cloud. And that has been a huge kind of selling point to many teams, companies, even individuals who you can get started with cloud very, very quickly, you know, in a matter of minutes. But if you ever decide, you know what, I don't like these live kit folks and the way they're operating their platform, or I have particular security needs that I have to comply with when I go to production or anything like that, you can easily just spin up your own instance, switch those three kind of variable values, and you're running on your own deployment. We actually have some people even that are running in a hybrid way. Use cases that need high reliability and large scale, they're running that on cloud. And then everything else, they kind of push to their own open source deployment. So that has been a huge thing besides just being able to see the code is also truly feeling like you have the freedom to control your own destiny at any point. So I'd love to hear a bit about the types of projects that have really excited you that you've seen use LiveKit and maybe some of the moments where you really thought it was working because a really big project started using it or there were some new use cases brought on. And then I would also love to hear you kind of have this interesting front row seat into how like these new kind of multimodal communication they're being used. Like what do you kind of see really taking off right now that might not be as obvious to someone who's not like at kind of the front lines of infrastructure for these kinds of projects? Yeah, for sure. I think when we first started, we had this thesis that the way people were going to use cameras and microphones, audio and video on the internet was going to be drastically different and diverse from kind of what we had been seeing before with video conferencing. And so a design principle that we had from open source kind of onwards all the way through cloud and is still our design principle is build kind of a general purpose platform that can be used for anything and then just wait. Wait and see what are the kinds of things people are going to build on this. And we can always kind of go up market or upstream and build abstraction layers on top of that underlying substrate that makes something like video conferencing less code to implement or make live streaming less code to implement, et cetera. And we took that approach from the very start and almost from the very start as well. When we launched LiveKit Open Source July of 2021, the use cases that came in, of course, video conferencing was one of them, but that was only about 50% of the use cases that came in, even from open source, the first open source launch. The other 50% span things like live streaming, robotics, spatial computing, multimodal AI, logistics companies, collaboration. There were all these different, this like huge long tail of all these different use cases. Some really interesting ones that are kind of exciting and also just prove out this thesis that we've had 
one very early user of LiveKit is Skydio. And Skydio built an entire drone teleop system around LiveKit that people use in police precincts. And so a police officer can go and they can connect to any Skydio drone that is flying around surveilling a particular place of interest and take control of that drone, issue command and control over it and steer that drone around for different vantage points. And so that's a really amazing kind of use case for us to be able to power. There's a autonomous tractor company that is also using LiveKit and they take LiveKit and they load it onto an NVIDIA Jetson running on the tractor. Someone working on the farm can go up to that tractor, can take control of it, steer it around, change its waypoints around the, you know, the crops. So that's another really amazing use case. Another one that I think is really close to my heart, probably my most favorite use case is that LiveKit is running in 20% of 911 dispatch centers. 911, you may not be familiar with kind of the new capabilities of 911, but if something is happening where you need to use audio and video and GPS data, so high fidelity situational data, you can actually tell the dispatch agent, text me a link. A link will come to your phone. You can tap on that link and you'll be streaming audio and video in a mobile browser instantly. And the dispatch agent can then use that to figure out where are you, what's happening. Every single week, this company that deploys us in these 911 centers, every single week they save someone's life because someone has a heart attack and someone calls 911. The person who's with them calls 911. The dispatch agent sends them a link. They're broadcasting audio and video. They prop their phone up against something. And the dispatch agent coaches them on how to administer CPR. And they save someone's life every single week for this use case. And so that's another one that is this very different way of using and leveraging the camera and the microphone. Now, law enforcement or government agencies are starting to look at this because this company is extending this and adding AI capabilities to that video. So now it can read license plates. It can detect firearms. And all of that is kind of, all that data is being shuttled through LiveKit's uh, system. So that's another really, a really amazing use case. You kind of mentioned multimodal AI. And, and so another use case specifically around multimodal AI. What's so exciting about this use case is kind of the broad impact that I think it's going to have in the future. I talked about the camera and the microphone being the eyes and ears of a machine. And if you think about companies like OpenAI and Anthropic and Google with Gemini, et cetera, building these foundational models that are as smart as or smarter than a human, the way you're probably going to interface with a machine as smart as a human is the way that humans interface with other humans. And the natural way that most people interface with each other, yes, sometimes you use your thumbs in a text thread, but most of the time you're using your eyes, your ears, and your mouth. You're using voice and vision. So I'm really, really excited about this multimodal AI use case and being able to be the nervous system to the brain in that analogy. And earlier in 2023, around April, when GPT 3.5 had just come out, I said, okay, well, there is an opportunity here that if you tune that entire pipeline and get the latency low enough, effectively stream all the tokens in, stream them out, generate speech on the fly, and stream that out over someone's speakers, if you can get that full end-to-end pipeline latency low enough, you can have a very convincing conversation with AI that feels human-like. And so we built this demo called Kit, kind of a playoff Knight Rider kit, but also live kit, of course. And we put it out there. 
And the response to it and kind of like this inflection point of growth in the platform has really been amazing. It's very quickly become the most popular sample app that we have. What we wrote about it has been one of our most popular blog posts. And we've seen now multiple companies that have come in and started to build on the platform and really achieve scale for this multimodal AI use case. I can't talk about some of them that are running at really, really large scale for having conversations with AI, but a couple of them I can talk about. So the 911 one is very interesting. That is really kind of them building, ultimately their vision is to build an AI agent that can pair up with the dispatch agent and work together for triaging and dealing with the situations that happen in 911 calls. There's another company that is buying effectively all of the call centers around Europe and Asia, and they are building customer support agents as the frontline agents that you can call in, have a customer support call with them, and you can call in from a phone using LiveKit SIP that we just launched in developer preview recently. The customer calls in from a phone, having a conversation with an LLM, and then if you need to call out to a supervisor, a human supervisor, it'll call out, bring the both humans into that conversation. And then the ensuing, uh, all the data that's coming from the back and forth between those two humans is getting generated and used to train that LLM for future conversations about similar things. And so that's another use case that's using LiveKit kind of in this agent scenario. And that kind of takes me to this new thing that we're working on and we're launching. We just launched it actually in developer preview, which is what we call LiveKit agents. We've been working with various companies now, some of them at really massive scale on these conversational experiences or these multimodal, I should say, uh, interactions with AI in the back end, because it's not just voice, but also video as well, being able to process video and react to video and generate responses based on video, but also being able to synthesize video. So it's both audio and video or voice and video. And so LiveKit Agents is really all of the learnings that we've had from working with these companies on these use cases put together into a single package that makes it really easy for any developer to build these multimodal AI experiences. So being able to wire up an agent that connects on the back end using WebRTC to a LiveKit session, and then having all these different types of plugins with 11 Labs and DeepGram and OpenAI and Anthropic, having those plugins effectively completely put together, ready to go, and you can compose those together into any kind of multimodal agent experience. And then being able to use the phone or a standalone camera or any type of camera to effectively connect back into LiveKit session and give that agent, that model on the back end, access and being able to process and analyze those frames or packets of video and audio. And so that's now in developer preview. And then the last part about LiveKit agents that is really interesting is how do you build an orchestration system for a long-lived, stateful conversation with AI? It's not the same as load balancing with a web server. With a web server, when you're responding to requests, all the requests kind of have the same amount of compute and take roughly the same amount of time. The workload is pretty uniform for a website loading pages and a user interacting with that website. And so load balancing is quite easy. You can kind of do it evenly across you know, a fleet of servers. But for a conversation or an interaction with AI, that's a variable amount of work. It lasts for a variable amount of time. How do you actually orchestrate that and scale that in a production setting? And so this is something that we had to do and work with these developers on 
how to scale these long-lived stateful interactions with an AI agent. And so we've taken that system that we've worked on with them and turned it into a general purpose orchestration layer that is part of LiveKit agents in that offering where you build your agent, you deploy it, and it connects and registers with our server. And then we deal with the load balancing and the monitoring and the health checking and all of that stuff, the auto scaling. So it's really, really nice kind of one-stop shop for the entire end-to-end multimodal AI agent use case. Awesome. There's so much happening with LiveKit. I feel like this is actually great to hear all the progress and all the things we're working on, especially multimodal is huge. What are the biggest, I'll say, challenges you feel like are things that you learned the most or you feel like was the hardest for you to overcome? Because obviously going for this in this way, there's so many different things you could do. There's so many uh, trust you need to build. Can you maybe talk about like the top couple of, of things that are hardest you've learned during this period of running LifeKids? And what are the sort of major lessons there? Yeah, I would say that the hardest thing that we have had to deal with at LiveKit, there is one major one from a kind of a technical standpoint that has been a, a huge challenge for us. One of the choices that we made with LiveKit Cloud, our commercial version, when it came time to kind of commercialize and build this global network for real-time audio and video, is what should be the network underneath that powers this, right? Should we deploy it on AWS or GCP? How should we run it? If you look at the space of audio and video infrastructure from when we started LiveKit Open Source, I talked about how for the last 10 years, all of the offerings out there have been primarily built around video conferencing. I think a key issue, though, that all of these infrastructure providers have had is that nobody is as good as Zoom. Zoom is the most ultra-reliable kind of gold standard in terms of uptime, reliability, works everywhere. It just always works. And no infrastructure provider, and this is something that we learned from talking to every one of the customers and users that have chosen LiveKit and taken a look at LiveKit, nobody has been able to bring about kind of the Zoom level of reliability and quality as an infrastructure provider, not an end user application like Zoom. And so one of the reasons why Zoom has been able to provide that level of quality and reliability is because they control the entire stack from the bottom to the top. And that includes the metal underneath. It includes the data centers. You need to be able to control the full thing. And so for us, when we were building, we had to make this decision, which was, do we just build on AWS and leverage the fact that AWS has an amazing network that they, by the way, charge a lot of money for? Or do we go and try to not insulate ourselves from all the different networking problems that can occur when you build on other cloud providers and kind of a diverse set of cloud providers. And so we said, for the long run, that's where we want to be. We want to be as close as possible to the metal without actually being on the metal. We want to learn as we go along all the different quirks and problems that can occur at the network layer. And over time, build a software stack that can route around, deal with, and predict all the issues that can happen so that when it does come time, when we do reach a level of scale where we can rationalize building our own data centers out, it can be as easy as slotting in our own rack somewhere and running our own data center very easily. And so we took that approach, but we had so much pain in taking that approach. We had outage after outage after outage after outage when we first launched cloud and some very 
upset, but patient design partners who kind of went on that journey with us and were tolerant of the fact that we were having these outages over and over and stuck with us. But it was an extremely painful few months of where something would go wrong. Someone would sever a fiber line between Bangalore and San Francisco. We had someone we kind of run a multi-cloud system where we're not dependent on any one cloud provider and we run different cloud providers all over the world as one kind of giant overlay network. And so one cloud provider had an undersea cable that became disconnected. And all of a sudden you couldn't reach certain parts of the world in Asia and people couldn't get video from folks in Asia. And that was another catastrophe. And so we've had to try to figure out how do we detect these things? How do we fail over and route people around those things? How do we move them to different servers in different regions? And That is a process that was hard, but I'm also glad that we did it in retrospect early on because it's a much harder thing to do once you're running really large-scale traffic like we are today to go and kind of swap the engines out mid-flight, a much, much harder thing to do than to start with it from the beginning. And so that was probably the most stressful, difficult, challenging part of building LiveKit, the product. Another part I will mention that I think has been tricky about LiveKit as a business, and this kind of brings me back to advice for other open source founders, is really thinking about your license. One of the things that we've heard about time and time again in open source are companies that get wrapped. So Elastic is one of them. There are other ones too. Timescale went through kind of this ordeal as well. And when we were first kind of building LiveKit, we went in eyes wide open. Okay, one day if we're successful, we will eventually have the attention of one of the bigger companies, the bigger cloud providers, et cetera, that might actually choose to wrap us. And we thought, okay, it's many years away from now, probably won't happen for a while. But two years in, it has already happened. We have a few companies that are you know, bigger valuations than us, have raised more money than us. They are actually running LiveKit underneath. It's just branded with their name and their logo. And we also have some of the larger companies that, I won't name names, but some of the larger companies that are now looking at using our infrastructure and wrapping it. And I would say it's not hard in that it doesn't keep me up at night. For us, we're in this position where Matrix, a decentralized messaging platform, would have never integrated LiveKit as its conferencing solution if we weren't Apache 2.0 open source, right? If we were closed source, that type of thing would have never happened. An autonomous tractor would have never loaded us on an NVIDIA Jetson sitting on that tractor if we weren't open source and you know the, all the tools were there for them to be able to go and, and do something like that. So we are very thankful and committed to the fact that we've done open source because we would have just never gotten to this point if we hadn't been completely open from the start. And so our kind of angle on it is just move faster than everyone else. If we go and we decide to change our license now, That's more of a defensive move. And some people choose to do that, but we prefer to take offensive moves instead and just move faster and more quickly because that's really our advantage against a really large company is that we can get alignment and move faster than they can, but they have pricing power and more people than we do. So it's always that kind of balance and dynamic. But that's been a challenging thing to deal with. You know, it it sometimes sits in the back of your mind. I feel okay about it now and I feel very you know, confident that we're going to we're gonna keep moving quickly and, and build the best thing out there. But um, it is something that I think developers should really think about up front. I come from the consumer software world. And one of the things that 
is interesting about consumer software that you talk about when you build features is you can always give features, but it's much, much harder to take those features away. When it comes to licensing, it's the same thing. It's very easy to give, but hard to take it away. So think about that as well uh, if you are starting an open source company from kind of the business commercialization standpoint. Yeah, I think that is really, really good advice to end on. Russ, this was a fantastic conversation. Such a good way to kick off the year of Open Source Podcast. So thank you so much for doing this with us. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. I I had a great time. I feel honored to be the first episode of the year. And uh, congratulations on three years and all the progress you've made since then. Awesome. Thanks, Russ. Thank you so much, Robbie and Tim.